and welcome to episode number 54 of Become a Guitarist Today with myself, Adam Roach. Now the music you are listening to at the moment is from my guest today, Chris Brooks. Chris is from Sydney, Australia and is an amazing player. So in this interview we get to talk about how Chris first started and also his books, Neoclassical and Sweet Picking, Speed Strategies for Guitar. And Chris also has a couple of albums out, one released in 2002 called The Master Plan, and the other one in 2011, The Axis of All Things, which you'll be able to hear all the songs played throughout today's podcast. So before we go to the interview with Chris, just like to once again mention my sponsors, so Living Music in Greensboro, so you can check out the notes and click on the link to get 10% off their, their store. And the other one is Custom Guitar Picks. So if you go to customguitarpicks.com, you can check out all the different designs and pick tins that, that Gus has available through the site. So let's go over the interview now with Chris Brooks. All right, so first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No worries. Um, so, can you just tell us a bit about about yourself? You know, when, how you first got started, and what made you get into the guitar? Um, I got started in the late '80s. I think it was probably '88. So, I'm, I guess I'm coming up on on 30 years of playing. And there were two sort of pivotal moments for me. One was seeing Brett Garsed play uh, with John Farnham. That was like just I had no idea that someone could do that on a guitar. And then the second sort of you know, thing was was John Norum in the band Europe playing the, the final countdown. So yeah. between those two things, I kind of just, I had to do it. And I, I used to build these fake guitars when I was a, a kid just because I really just wanted, it was like the kid with the tennis racket, except I wanted to, to have a pick guard and volume knob and strings and stuff. So so I used to do that. My parents eventually um, bought me one, and, and I think that was probably late 88. So yeah. um, just been doing that ever, ever since, trying to just, bust a gut to, to, to reach those guys, not saying I ever will, but, you know, I mean, there's always that kind of the initial inspiration is, is I'm still chasing it, you know what I mean? So that's what keeps it, keeps it fueled. Yeah, and I noticed you've actually met both the guys and, and I had uh, Brett on your album as well. Yeah, yeah, it was, um, it was like amazing to, to trade solos with Brett. Um, he's just one of the most approachable guys, considering he pretty much wrote a book on what half of YouTube is doing right now. Mm. It, it's, it's amazing that you can just, you know, befriend a guy like that and, and have him work on your stuff. Sometimes I listen to it and I still don't click that it's me playing the other solos, you know yeah. what I mean? It's just one of those, like, dream things. So, yeah, amazing. kind of had a Brett vibe when I was writing that song and I kind of could imagine him playing over it and luckily he did so yeah, yeah. that's awesome yeah he was on the podcast a while ago too it was, yeah fantastic it's it's criminal the way that he I mean he is revered by the by the right people but at the same time like a guy like that should be a talking point for for guitar everywhere really it's just yeah. you know even my thing in standard tuning slide mm. where he's just like switching the, the intervals between major thirds and minor thirds at at speeds that 
he doesn't have any business doing it. It's just perfect. And yeah. even slide players should be looking up to that guy and saying, man, that's just pitch perfect, you know? Yeah. So with that recording, did you go to his house or was it more on the email and everything? It was all the, yeah, just inbox sessions, really. So um, this is the funny part. I, I, um, I did my solos first because I thought, there's no after I hear Brett's, there's no way I'm going to want to play guitar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I kind of, I, um, you know, launched a preemptive strike by doing my bits first, and then he sent it back. And I guess he was maybe feeling a bit of uh, PTSD from having his um, his own album out a few months before, but he sent it back kind of sheepishly. Oh, look, I hope this is all right. And I'm like, are you kidding me? It's like amazing. Yeah. So that's the kind of guy he is. He's like still like, oh man, if you want me to do another one, I'll I'll do it. And then, yeah, you know, but it was exactly what it was exactly Brett, you know. So yeah, yeah, no, that's cool. And then so the other one you mentioned, uh, John Norum from Europe. You you got to meet him. Was it this year? Actually, well, I actually he was the only one I didn't get to meet. So, oh, really? Um, yeah, I I, um, I was in contact with the promoter of their Aussie tour, and after seeing this, and I'm not really a Mika Heroes kind of guy, but um, hmm. for lots of reasons, Ingve. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, I contacted this guy after the Sydney show, and, and I was going to Brisbane the next day, and I said, "Is there any chance of a of a meetup when the guys are in Brisbane?" And he went, "Yeah, yeah." So. So I went to the, the meet and greet thing before the show and um, and everyone was there except John Norum, but yeah. apparently he doesn't do these things because I think he likes to spend a lot of time like practicing beforehand and whatever. So so I actually posed with the band Europe and I'm in the middle and I actually joked with the guys that I'm going to, and when this hits Instagram, I'm announcing myself as, <laughs> as the new guitar player of Europe. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. No, didn't get to meet him, but that's okay. I got to watch him play and it was, you know, killer. That's really good. Yeah, so going back to, so when you first started, did you say you had a teacher or you pretty much um, did by yourself for a while? I, mean, I kind of, it's going to sound a bit cocky, but I feel like I taught myself the good stuff and I went to teachers for everything else because I found it until I, until years later when I went to the Institute of Music in, in Sydney and found a lot of great players that were like-minded and I could kind of trade ideas with, I kind of felt like I was stuck with a, a lot of teachers that just... Um, that wanted to stick to you know basic sort of stuff and and that in retrospect that was good but at the time i felt really held back so yeah. so i was going to one guy and he was teaching me elvis presley and roy orbison songs and things like that but in retrospect now i look back and i go i never have to guess how to strum a particular pattern or what key a particular chord progression's in or anything like that because i laid those it's almost like i had to wait maybe two or three years before i got into the good stuff yeah. so i felt held back then but then like now, you know, 20, 30 years later, I can kind of go, yeah, that was a, it, it turned out to be a good thing. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And so with the reading and everything, how did you go about that? Did you do that by yourself or with the teacher? Uh, I started with like just things like the Mel Bay method. So I was, I was in on, you know, sight reading basic stuff right from the beginning. And I, I wouldn't call myself a sight reader these days either. either. Like rhythmically, yeah, um, but I don't do any gigs that require instant you know yeah, yeah. on the spot reading and playing so um but in terms of getting on the ground floor with music and understanding rhythm and pitch and all that from that was right from the beginning so it wasn't sort of the case where 
you know, guitar lesson one is smoke on the water and, and listen to his black dog. And then years later, you wonder what are these actual notes? I kind of, yeah. kind of got that wrong from the beginning and also had a dad. Um, I still have him. He's awesome. Yeah. Um, but he played um, piano accordion uh, as a kid and he's a career drummer who actually got to play with John Farnham once really. um, just to tie that all in. But, yeah. um, but he had this theory book that, you know, that had the circle of fifths and notation and all this sort of stuff in it. So I, I, I knew what notes were in a major scale before I knew how to play one. Yeah. So I feel like that, that turned out to be a really good thing as well. Yeah. So moving on from there with your teaching, how do you find it these days? Because I mean, I teach full time as well about kids like getting into reading straight away or you know, learning songs first and then getting into the reading. It, it's really interesting because it's kind of like getting kids to eat vegetables or something you've got to they've got to understand why if they don't understand why that they've got to eat their vegetables before their ice cream then uh, it's really hard to get them to do it so i kind of give i dangle carrots of okay so lesson one we're going to learn a little bit about what this instrument is and why you need to why why we're going to do the things we're going to do but last 10 minutes of the thing what's your favorite song okay here's a little bit from that song so you could kind of so from a beginner level, not that I teach many beginners these days, but um, that's sort of the approach, just to give a give some incentives, but also give information that's going to benefit them later, even if they don't know that it is, you know. So it's one of those age-old things. You probably talk to every teacher on earth and they go, oh, man, getting these kids to read is just, yeah. you know. But you know, as you as you know in your own teaching, it's they've got to understand language. Otherwise, you know, just to, to liken it to our – our minimal mutual Thai language understanding. Yeah. If you if you just know how to throw words together, but you don't really know what they are and which bit means what, mm. it's hard to reconfigure that sentence to mean something else. You know what I mean? It's just you're just parroting something that you read in a book or, or heard somebody say without really understanding. It's like teaching a cockatoo to say a swear word. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's important. I, I wouldn't. Want, I certainly wouldn't want anyone I teach to go through their whole guitar playing. Thing just being like that, you know? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's what I, I mean, I teach mainly primary school kids. And, you know, so I find if, um, I, I mean, I've tried both ways. I actually taught through a, a music school where they had their set ways of doing things. And it was like yep. through the book, G, A, whatever, you know, for one lesson and next lesson. They made me last six months, where now, you know, a lot of the students have I teach them smoke on the water and other songs. Plus, like you said, get a bit of a theory behind it. They'll stick to it for ages, you know. Because they can hear, yep. hear something coming out of it rather than just, you know, you're sitting there doing the... <laughs> exactly. They've got to understand that, 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 that it's all part of the puzzle. And I guess, you know, in terms of like, I used to I used to run a music school as well. It was a very big school that had 800 students, but we're also a retail outlet as well. Okay. And parents would say when they're buying their instruments, should I buy acoustic or buy electric? And there was this old sort of, oh, you have to earn an electric, you have to play, you have to do your apprenticeship on the on the nylon string, and then you have to do. I just say to them, look, whatever is going to make them rush home, kick that school bag down, and go and pick up the guitar. Yeah. That's the one you buy. But if you want a pretty one that's made out of wood and gathers dust, then get the acoustic. You know what I mean? Because, yeah. and it's a it's the same sort of thing with, you know, music. They've got to you've, you've got to teach them something that they're actually going to want to play. Yeah. balanced with something that they're going to need to play. Either way, they're going to end up having to go back to the thing that they missed anyway. Mm. So if you've bought them the electric when they started, a year later they're going to want the acoustic. And if you teach them only cool things, 
hopefully, eventually they're going to want to learn their music as well. But the, the more of it that happens simultaneously, I guess, especially with rhythm, because they're getting they're getting tabs from the internet and stuff like that, yeah. and not understanding like rhythmic dictation or punctuation or anything like that. So yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why I try and even if I do have the tab, I have the music above so they can see you know, how long the notes go that's for it. or whatever. So. I try. Yeah, yeah and that's <laughs> and that's how if they bring me if someone brings me a tab that's like that, you know, I'll use the tab for for positioning. But then even if I don't know the song, if I if I can see that it goes da 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 da, and I apply those notes, they go, "How did you do that so quickly?" And it's like, well, I understand where these go, what what these mean, the notes, and I understand that these tell me where to play the notes, and that's yeah. how it works, you know. Yeah, and I think that's the way a lot of it goes these days as well uh, with the kids. You know, they. If they've got that rhythm, they've got the tab. It's easy, you know, to, to yep. learn uh, to learn quickly, I guess, in a, a way than rather than just learning notes and yeah, not getting many songs down. At least now they're getting songs uh, plus a bit of theory as well. Absolutely. Now, going back to your your playing, so after you learnt, so you got straight into bands, was it after that? Yeah, I um I was in I did usual high school bands uh, when I was playing the at AIM we had ensemble classes and things like that. So so I was I was playing mostly like with my friends. I was playing hard rock covers. So I was doing like Inve and Van Halen and, and Europe covers and, and 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 our first couple of gigs with, with those kind of things. But then at music school, I was doing you know, learning jazz standards or learning how to play funk or, you know, sort of different different stuff that I might not have come across just by jamming with my friends. So mm. so I got band exposure pretty early, but ironically I haven't made a career out of band playing, you know, so. Yeah, so more, more the teaching and other things. Yeah, so uh, I guess in, in in the age of the internet, a lot of people know music I've released or or, or less, lots of lesson videos on YouTube or Facebook or whatever. Yep. Um, it's sort of one of those things now that, you know, you have to work out multiple income streams and, uh, and, and, and also keep yourself happy at the same time. But I guess different people know me for different things, but um, I guess mostly these days it's the education stuff. Yeah, that's cool. Actually, you mentioned the, the funk playing before, because I actually wrote down here, because when I was listening to your album, there's a bit of um, you know, funk playing going on. So who would you be your main influences for funk playing? Pretty much drummers, really. I, I don't really, I mean, guitar playing wise, like, you know, I learned, you know, lots of James Brown little hooks and things like that. Yep. Once I figured out what syncopation was, it was just a matter of trying to apply that to not just rhythm guitar, but, but lead guitar as well. Mm. So even... You know, even if I had a rhythm that was quite straight and, and maybe a little banal, I could still try and apply some funky phrasing over it just by kind of, in my head, I hear this constant stream of 16th notes yep. and it's just like, which ones am I going to put something on yep. and which ones am I going to leave for space? And I think that's probably the essence of a lot of funk sort of playing is it's that's it's right. the where, where you put things is almost more important than, than what you put. So once I, I don't know if I had specific influences like guitar players, but it was just just the genre in general, maybe bass players too, because I think mm. bass and drums, like I could listen to bass and drums all, all night, but give me a guitarist just wailing and I'd probably lose interest a lot quicker than I would in the in the drummer. You know, I, I've played drums almost as long as, as guitar and dad was a drummer. So 
I kind of feel like I grew up to the sound of paradiddles yeah. <laughs> coming out of the garage on a rubber pad, you know. So um, it sort of felt like it's it's already internalised rather than sort of you know grabbed from from specific people. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly what I mean. I mean, cause my brother's a drummer, so we grew up together playing, and uh, I mean, it's mainly the, the rock, Metallica, Van Halen, Kiss, that type of thing. But yeah. but later on, yeah, I did get into the funk and yeah, similar thing. But I think it's probably with teaching wise. It's a, a tricky one to teach. Like, at least with rock, yeah, you can show you your notes and, um, you know, so whatever. But with the funk, it's really good. Yeah, you know, knowing where to strum, where to mute, and which I find a, a tricky thing to get. But, I mean, on the album, it sounds great, the stuff you do. Yeah. I think um, one of the things I use for that sort of stuff is I've got a few worksheets out that I've, I've done that sort of thing with, but a lot of it for me is getting them to be able to play uh, accents on certain 16th notes and then and then different 16th notes. So, for instance, playing the first out of each, you know, on the B yep. or accenting it more or less. Mm-hmm. And then going... Mm-hmm. And getting them to sort of feel where each of those 16th notes... Uh, and what they actually feel like when you when you hit them, you know what I mean? And then yep. sort of, and then I'm playing pitch to that maybe like. And then sort of, and then obviously doing a whole lot of mix and match. But yeah. um, even that can be really like you, you obviously would have found that with people as well. Yeah. Even getting them to do something like playing um, pitch on the last sixteenth of each beat can be a real mental thing for them. So it's, yeah. it's as much a mental thing as a, as a physical thing. So it's 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 really. I mean, I love the challenge actually. I love yeah. the thing I love about teaching the most is the diagnosis and the troubleshooting and the. I've never seen anybody do that. Let's figure out why that looks that way or whatever. Yeah. You know, that's way better than just teaching off the page. So Yeah. And I guess that's the thing I liked about your album as well, the the different styles you had, the funk playing, you had the more of the uh, the rock and the you had the acoustic one as well. So yeah, really, really nice. Thank you. another one coming out soon i don't know really i, I say this every uh, every year i say maybe next year but the state of things um and not that it should be all economical but people don't really buy albums and that doesn't mean you shouldn't make music but it just means it makes it harder to sell music and i think um where i've seen the edge like where i've seen in my own trajectory uh the education thing will there's a lot more sustainability in terms of an income and a business and, a, and whatever else. Yeah. I, I often make the joke and it sounds slightly cynical, but I say to people, people won't pay me $10 for an album, but they'll pay me $80 an hour to find out what I played on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So <laughs> it's dumb. And, you know, and, and I, and I understand that too, because when I hear a great player, I don't necessarily want to do exactly what he does, mm-hmm. but I might go, I want to know how to do that that kind of thing so that I can do it in my own way. So I think I think the internet sort of in the in the way it sort of uh, challenged the sustainability of music as a as an industry. 
it's sort of also opened up this thirst for knowledge and rather than sort of just go, ah, oh, people suck. They don't, they steal music. I'm going to go work at a bank. Yeah. Um, I've just sort of evolved into methods that, that do allow me to kind of sustainably do it. So I would like to make more music. Well, I mean, I make music, but I mean, I'd like to release more music, but it's just a matter of finding that window of opportunity where, uh, the wheels are still on financially and the creative juices are flowing and they kind of converge and they haven't converged for the last few years. So I just kind of, I, I still feel creative in what I'm doing, like writing books and making video courses or whatever. There's still a huge element of creativity, even video editing, you know, stuff like that. So I, I still get to express myself, but it's just not in the four minute and 30 second format, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so going back to your two books now, which is, uh, yeah, I've read up, and they look really good too, so I want to definitely get into those. So your first oh. one was, what, 2017? Is that the neo, neoclassical one? Yeah, yeah, so that was based on, so I did a, a video course a few years ago called The Ingway, which is obviously a tongue-in-cheek reference to uh, Ingvar Malmsteen and breaking down the sort of the biomechanics of his um, technique. And then when I had an opportunity to, to sign with a publisher in the UK called Fundamental Changes, we sort of we adapted the material for that book, but added a whole bunch more, what I call nerd talk. But I, I love that stuff as well. Just like the real nitty gritty of everything people didn't understand or still weren't catching from the video course is in the book. So yeah. that was it. Sort of started as an adaptation, but it ended up just being its own thing. So a lot of people own both these days. Yeah. So then you got the new one, what just released what one month ago? Was it the sweet picking? Yes, I think yeah, three three and a half weeks ago, something like that. Um, speed. Uh, tweet picking speed strategy. So it sounds like a continuation, but it's a self-contained kind of book all about uh, sweet picking, but kind of in that same spirit of looking at pick angles, slanting mechanics, turnaround strategies, rather than just the pick goes up and the pick goes down, kind yeah. of here are the licks. <laughs> you know, I didn't want it to be a, a, a lick book specifically, yeah. but turned out there's, there's like a, over 100 different uh, licks in there as well. Yeah. Because so I think, for, uh, for personally, for me, this is pretty much where I used to need to step up on my playing. Because, yeah, you know, I went through all my years, you know, do tapping everything else, but as far as my um, sweep picking and arpeggios, it's pretty average, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, you know, I teach things like the just the major. The... Yeah, things like that. That's probably as much as I get as far as the arpeggios and. But I mean, yeah, yeah occasionally I, do that. You know, so I really yeah, the thing about it is that it's it's almost I liken it to chasing a ball down a hill sometimes because it can be a technique that's difficult to control because you've got this directional momentum yeah. and it can really easily turn into what I call guitar shop arpeggios where you just hear the bottom and you hear the top. Yeah. You just hear like in between, you know what I mean? It can be hard to even if someone was accurately fingering notes in that there's something mechanically that's not kind of working there. So I, yeah. I wanted to kind of create the book that was either you learn it, refine it, or master it, wherever, depending on where you're at. So if someone's never done it, they can go and start just on your basic. But if someone's like, okay, I want six string arpeggios in major seven chords in three or four different positions, yeah. they can find that as well. Yeah. That's chapter 10. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> cool. 
So are most of yours, you pick nearly all, all the notes, or is there some hammer-ons, pull-offs, legato playing? I do love legato, and I, and I obviously picked up a lot of that from, from listening to Brett. Um, when I am playing uh, scale stuff, if I, if I want the sound of pure kind of, you know, alternate picking attack, I'll use that. If I want the flow of economy picking, I'll do that. Mm. If I want to strategically or just musically place a couple of pull-offs here or there, I'll do that. I tend to either go one or the other. So if I'm doing legato, I'll just do legato. You know? I don't do much of it. Where there's sort of like a 50-50 mix of, of both. It seems to be fairly evenly you know, pushed in one direction or, or the other. Whereas if I'm playing maybe a scale thing that's even numbers of notes per string, like an Yngwie kind of thing, that's all picked. But, but if I wanted a bit more flow, then I just, just add a few. You know, it becomes a musical choice rather than a, I'm locked into having to do it one way. So yeah. I, I kind of, at this point, I, I guess the, it's an overused word, organic, but I think that the way it comes together now is pretty organic. It's not very um, pre-thought out. Yeah. No, I wish I, wish I could play like that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, wish I, play, I wish I could play like me in like five or ten years. It's kind of like we're always chasing that thing. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's. Uh, I made a post on Facebook once about, you know, 20, 30 years ago I probably wanted to be the player I am now, but now I want to be the player that I'll be, you know, in, tw- in 20 years' time. So it never stops, and I love that. My dad, you know, the drummer, still practices four or five hours a day because, you know, nearly 80 years old, he's still chasing something, you know, yeah. and that's that's how I want to be as well. Yeah. So if you, like, as far as uh, other styles and everything, what was your main thing you want to accomplish, just say, in 30 years' time? Just more other styles of playing or...? Yeah, I think so, and to understand my own playing better. But I think, uh, I think my retirement plan is to buy an acoustic and 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 study Tommy Emanuel or something like. I love players that that do something completely different to me. Mm. But since it's not my bread and butter, I kind of consider that the the retirement plan, the the what I'll do for me, just when I when I'm having fun, you know, for my own thing. So, yeah. um, definitely other styles. I'd love to become a real jazz player at some point, not for public consumption, but just, just for me. Same with blues. You know, I, yeah. I like to play blues, but, but I'd love to just spend six months doing nothing but, you know, and just um, absorbing that sort of vocabulary to a, to a higher level. So, yeah. so I've got plans, but we'll see. Yeah. Never, it will always work out. So. <laughs> no, actually, I had a guitarist on um, a few months ago, John Gom from the UK. Yeah, amazing player. Yeah. And just like he sent me his um, instructional DVD, and it's incredible. Like it's, it's like saying the guitar all over again. You know, the things he does is amazing. I started learning little bits of it. Yeah, and I think that was being produced by Tom Quayle, who's another yeah, that's right. super amazing player as well. So yeah, yeah. So with these books, so most people can get them on your site and your CDs as well. Yeah. So my um, my site is kind of the books are actually published uh, by uh, uh, Fundamental Changes in the UK, and they're printed by they're actually printed on demand by Amazon. So when people buy them from like Amazon UK or USA or now Australia, they actually run them off according to demand. So they're kind of once it's once I release the book, it's never out of stock. Okay. Um, but my website is kind of the portal to 
you can buy CDs or you can buy the lesson courses or you can link to the Amazon or the PDF or whatever from, from there. Sorry, one more thing I wanted to ask you. With your picks, what gauge do you use for your sweep picking? I kind of, well, anything that doesn't bend is okay. So I've got a whole bunch of picks that are two millimeter and three, three millimeter, um, 2.5, 2.75, anything sort of that doesn't bend. Because I think, especially with, um, there's a concept in sweeping that's uh, in the book, and a lot of people talk about it called the rest stroke, which is the importance of having the pick sort of slam into each new string rather than have these separated free strokes as, as you go down. Yeah. And if you have a, a really thin pick, um, what you find is that the lag in the time that the bending takes to actually flick from one string to the next mm. can just really slow down. And you also get this kind of, it's like the baseball card in the in the bicycle wheel kind of, yeah, tap, yeah. Tap, 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 tap. you get this kind of like flatty kind of sound with a really thin pick. So yeah. normally tell people, go with what's comfortable, but something that doesn't bend is actually going to allow the pick to instantly you know, follow your commands as far as like moving from one string to another. Yeah. So I've got picks by Dunlop and Hawk picks and Gravity and just a whole bunch of them. I sort of, I don't nerd out on buying all the latest gear, but um, but I buy picks all the time just to just to see what's out there. Yeah, oh, that's good. Actually, I use um, one of my sponsors actually. <laughs> it's called Custom Guitar Picks. Yeah, I mean, I guess people like uh, with acoustic playing, for instance, they want a certain softness but I, i've learned to kind of just get that with whatever pick i'm using i don't even think that like the the materials and the shape and all that i think your technique can shape around a pick that, that you actually like there's a video of me on instagram playing just for fish and giggles with the corner of a ruler just doing a kind of a that kind of lick but i'm doing it with a ruler just to show that it's really not that kind of you know it's not that important you, you kind of you do learn to shape around it but i think anything that that holds you back is just something to throw in the bin. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you think it's important to get your right hand up to speed with the left, especially for that type of playing as well? Yeah, I think I, I, I definitely think, you know, when people say to me, I, I can speed pick, I can pick really fast, but um, my left hand doesn't keep up. And I'm going, well, you're not really kind of speed picking. It's like saying I can run really fast, but mostly with the right leg. It's just, um, <laughs> you know, it doesn't quite, it doesn't work in the grand scheme of things. So yeah. I think building that technique up, simultaneously both hands you know and then in terms of tempo because basically the brain can't speed up something it doesn't know how to do mm. so uh, trying to trying to just wait for that connection to magically appear it doesn't really yeah it can be a fruitless endeavor so i would say to kind of push your tempo once you've got your solid kind of thing so in the new book i talk about this thing called the three stages of, of motor development and there's the cognitive the associative and the uh autonomous and the cognitive is where you're really just working hard to think about what you're playing and how you're playing it mm. and then you move to the associative stage which is a bit more comfortable and you can kind of think about other things like tone or changing your arpeggios or changing your scales or whatever and then the autonomous is what people will refer to as the the muscle memory thing where you can just play whatever you want whenever you want yeah. um, and that process is still happening but it's just happening sort of as a background thing. So I normally tell people spend a lot of time, like spend 60% of your playing, playing at 60% of your tempo, kind of your top speed maybe, and then every now and then just do a burst and just 
keep pushing that ceiling up. When you when you push the ceiling up, you push the floor up as well, you know. So, um, but to just play at ceiling all the time with no synchronization is just it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. no, that's a good good way of putting it. It's excellent. That's cool. cool. Glad yeah. you like. Yeah. Only sixty dollars. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Thanks again for this. No worries. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right. Have yourself a good day. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, see you later. Bye-bye. See ya. And there we go. So another great player on the podcast, Chris Brooks. So thanks again very much. And I really look forward to getting into both the books to expand on my guitar playing and my guitar techniques. Like I said in the interview, it's probably one of the, the weaknesses I have with my playing doing the arpeggios and sweet picking so I really look forward to getting into this if you would like to become a patron of the podcast again click on the notes down below where you see the the Patreon page and check out all the different packages I have available or you can also go to my website becomeaguitaristoday.com where you can see the previous guests I've had on my podcast and my albums that I have available so until next week keep jamming